It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing the latest round of skirmishes between Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt and the general state of the Tory leadership contest. Plus, we'll be digging into the economic and immigration policies of both candidates. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, columnist Robert Shrimsley, economics editor Chris Giles and deputy opinion editor Miranda Green. Thank you all for joining. And if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, then do subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. The Conservative Party's leadership contest rumbled on this week and things became even more personal. Jeremy Hunt started to take bigger chunks out of Boris Johnson, describing the frontrunner as a coward for ducking a head-to-head TV debate on Sky, while Johnson toughened up his language on leaving the EU on October 31st, come what may, do or die. But really, nothing has changed in the dynamics of the race, with the latest poll of the party's grassroots shows that Boris has more than double the support of his rival. George Parker, now we're sort of three weeks to go until the new prime minister is decided. And obviously Boris Johnson had a big wobble last weekend in his campaign, resulting from this uh, leaked recording of a row between him and his partner, Carrie Simmons. And that really started the week with Boris on an uncertain footing. We saw a big shakeup of his campaign team and a media blitz from the front runner that sort of put him back to where he was this time last week, I think. Yes, I mean, I, I went to the uh, first hustings up in Birmingham last Saturday and it was the day after the story broke of his domestic row and um, he looked like a sort of, uh, almost like a shrunken figure as he arrived at the International Convention Centre and uh, avoiding the media in a very defensive posture. But you felt that during the week his confidence has returned and, and we were just observing before we came on, on air that he looked a bit more confident in his uh, most recent hustings down in Exeter And you feel that he's gone through the fire a bit, Boris Johnson, that he's survived the interrogation of his private life. He's alighted on a position on Brexit, a hardline position on Brexit, do or die, as you say, on Brexit, which he feels comfortable defending. And at the end of this week, you know, two thirds of party members appear still to be backing him. So he's he's in a pretty good position at this at this stage, I'd say. And you say that there's three weeks to go until the leader's chosen. That's correct. But of course, the ballot papers go out in about a week's time. Party members will probably fill in those ballot papers almost as soon as they receive them. So we've got about 10 days, I would say, for Jeremy Hunt to turn the tables on Boris Johnson and somehow make an inroad into his apparently unassailable lead. And that's going to be a big challenge for Mr Hunt that we saw from the latest Con Home poll I mentioned earlier mm. that Boris, about 66% of Tory grassroots members say that he's their favourite choice. Jeremy Hunt is now up to 30%, but he's still got... How could he even begin to try and turn around that kind of lead unless this poll is entirely wrong? And in fact, Jeremy Hunt is a lot more popular than people think with the grassroots members. Well, I don't think he is. And I mean, Jeremy Hunt's problem is A, he's a Remainer, and B, his position on Brexit is almost as incredible as Boris Johnson's, which I think is pretty incredible. The idea that you just keep on talking with no apparent way out of this uh, morass. And the party membership have clocked it. And I think we were saying on the podcast last week, really, the only thing that can stop Boris Johnson are extraneous 
uh, factors, things that we haven't thought of. And indeed, last time we were speaking, it was just before the Carrie Simons row broke. So it's got to be something really big to knock Boris Johnson off course. I don't think Jeremy Hunt on his own can do it. So, Miranda Green, do you think there's anything towards this idea that Boris is ducking a battle? Now, obviously, his campaign have decided they want to limit blue-on-blue attacks. And you notice when you've seen Boris at the hustings or in his interviews, he A, rarely talks about Jeremy Hunt and only when asked directly, always says, I have a lot of respect for Jeremy, he's a great guy, and never really attacks him in a way. Whereas Hunt, on the other hand, has really gone for Boris on this issue that he's ducking TV debate. It was meant to be a head-to-head debate on Sky on Tuesday. Boris said he wasn't going to do it. And instead, Jeremy Hunt sat and did some quite amusing tweets, actually, and did a Q&A with them, the good people on social media. So there are huge dangers for a party when you're going through a leadership contest. And one of them is, as we've said around this table, that your front runner, who in this case we think will eventually become your leader, ends up damaged by the contest. So that is a real danger. And I mean, I've been quite surprised in the last few days as to how much Hunt personally and his camp have gone after Johnson with these accusations of sort of cowardice and also untrustworthiness. That's quite a Character heavy, yeah, it's quite a heavy about. accusation to, um, you know, to, to, to level at the person who's probably going to be prime minister within weeks. So they're already into blue on blue, right? Even if the Boris Johnson camp are trying to avoid it. But I think it is quite sensible to have that in the back of their mind. I mean, when we had that awful BBC debate with the full slate of candidates that turned into a sort of hour of talking over each other and shouting and, and, and not remembering the name of, pe- of people who were asking them questions, etc. You know, somebody said to me, what's the opposite of a party political broadcast? You know, it's like anti-advertising. So you do need to sort of bear in mind that although in the next three weeks, the most important people in Britain are the 160,000 members of the Conservative Party, actually, at some point, and at some point, possibly not that too far down the line, this person is going to have to face the voters. So you really don't want the thing that's lingering in their head to be the accusations that you've levelled at each other. It's poor form not to do debates. It's really, really poor form. And it's quite an established principle now that people should do them. But it's not the be all and end all. um, And I think their reasons for ducking it are probably quite good ones. Robert Shrimsey, if we look back to last weekend when Boris was doing very little media, done not done that many media interviews at all, and then after the row became public and, as George said, he had to do his first hustings, which I think was 15 times or something he was asked, and then on Monday they started this media blitz. He did an interview with Nick Ferrari on LBC when he was asked, I think, 26 times about the row and still didn't answer it. And then he gave this talk radio interview where, fair play to the journalist Ross Kemps who did it, who basically put words into Boris's mouth, which was, do we leave on the 31st, come what may, do or die, to which Boris responded, come what may, do or die. So that is now a millstone around his neck. Now, it obviously will favour him with the Conservative Party's membership, but when we come to that inevitable Brexit crunch point we've all talked about so many times, those words are going to haunt him. How can he possibly wriggle out of a commitment that firm? Oh, just you watch him. (laughs) I I mean, I think, um, (laughs) look, I don't think that the phrase do or die, although it was very, very pithy, was a significant advance on his position over the last few weeks. He said, we've got to get out October 31st, and he hasn't really wavered from that. So although do or die has a sort of read my lips-ish quality to it, it is fundamentally his position. And I think the, the honest answer is that if you look at what Boris Johnson is engaged in, it is a mammoth bluff exercise with the European Union. He believes, and he's been writing this for quite a long time, he believes that it's a failure to suggest we're serious about leaving without a deal that has prevented the European Union from offering better terms than Theresa May managed to get. And this is a plausible argument. Now, a lot of people don't buy it, but there is a 
logic to it. And I think his view is you have to sound like you mean it, you have to look like you mean it, you have to plan like you mean it and hope that they blink. So it's the only strategy that he could possibly pursue. What he can't do is go into this concept, well, look, you know, we probably don't want to leave with no deal, but, you know, look, if we have to, we'll cave in like Theresa May did. That's not going to work. So he has to do this. And I think one of the facets of Boris Johnson that we've all come to understand is that he's not somebody who plans super long term, apart from the bit about wanting to be prime minister. He's not someone who thinks about all of the detail, you know, the seven steps down the road. He thinks about the next step. And then he'll worry about the step after that when he's taken this step. Mm-hmm. So the truth is, step one is get to Downing Street. Step two is worry about the rest of it afterwards. And I don't think he'll be too bothered about any hostages fortune he has given, you know, barring catastrophes. I don't think he'll be too bothered about this if it gets him to number 10 and then he'll figure it out afterwards. And if he has to say, look, you know, I had to sound tough to get a good deal, that's what he'll do. I think that's really interesting also from the point of view of what people project onto Boris when they're looking at him and thinking whether they'll vote for him or not. There was a very interesting sort of mini BBC focus group on this in which actually his very unpredictability and the fact that they assumed that they couldn't really believe his promises was actually seen as a negotiating strength went up against the EU. You know, it was this kind of madman theory as adopted, you know, from the Putin camp and now applied to Trump, which is that if you behave in a really peculiar manner, you might wrong foot your negotiating opposite number which actually those who were trying to choose between Hunt and Boris in this Conservative leadership contest, although they saw Hunt as more trustworthy, they saw Boris's very unpredictability and the likelihood that he would go back on commitments as a strength. But George, when you look at what Boris has kind of talked about this week as well, as he has started to put some policies out there. I'm going to talk later about who maybe his choice of Chancellor and what's going on there. But there is a bit more thought than maybe Robert was suggesting in terms of what he's actually thinking about, that there is some policy work in the Johnson camp. They've talked about how to save high streets. They've talked about some immigration things. How very dare you? bit more thought than I've been, <laughs> I've been suggesting. I think that's, a, that's outrageous. He's patently just pushing out policies to appeal to the... 160,000 Conservative Party members. It shows a certain contempt, I think, for the party members that these are the policies he's pushing because it's almost as if he's devising policies to appeal to, you know, to the terrace end at a Southampton game. This isn't, <laughs> this isn't real thought process. Yeah, I, th- I think I'm inclined to agree. With, I'm certainly agree with Robert that Boris Johnson's whole strategy is we'll cross that bridge when we come to it and <laughs> it doesn't look that far ahead. But yes, I mean, the policies he's putting out there are intended to cross the next bridge, which is getting into number 10. I mean, just look at the policy on tax cuts for higher earners policy which then retreated from very quickly. We've got a new policy on cutting stamp duty, which is all, they're already retreating on, I think. There are a whole load of policies that are being put out there which haven't been costed properly, which I suspect he's going to retreat from. However, you can start to see the shape of what a Boris Johnson premiership would be about. And it's encapsulated by the uh, slogan of Mark Fulbrook, who's the strategist brought in to run the second part of the Johnson campaign, which is deliver Brexit, unite the party and then defeat Jeremy Corbyn, D-U-D or DUD for short. That's the strategy. And so the first part of the strategy is to deliver Brexit, which I think is going to be incredibly difficult, hangs over the whole Johnson project. And he may not never get beyond that point, of course. But if he does, the policies he's starting to articulate give you a flavour of what he'd do. And essentially what he'd do is he'd take the policies that work for him in, in City Hall as London Mayor, so whether it's investing in cheap transport or housing or socially progressive policies like the London living wage that he promoted. It'd be those kinds of policies. And you're starting to see that. And I think, actually, Boris Johnson genuinely believes in that. He wants to be liked. He, he is actually a sort of centrist politician, apart from apart from on Brexit. The problem that Boris Johnson's got is he's got a 
get over the Brexit hump first of all, which in spite of the fact Robert says, well, he can retract on this. The trouble is he's, he's sworn in blood to a sizable part of his party, the European Research Group, the hardline Eurosceptics, that we will be out on the 31st of October. And as I said before, we are not going to be out on the 31st of October and there'll be a reckoning for him and it's only a few months away. You've just mentioned very briefly there George Mark Fulbrook and the other thing we saw this week for Boris Johnson was a bit of a shake-up of his campaign team, which uh, Ian Duncan Smith, the former Conservative Party leader, has been brought in to chair the campaign. And Mark Fulbrook, who I think was best known for running Zach Goldsmith's problematic mayoral campaign in 2016, has been brought to run things day to day. Now, the Johnson campaign, and there was always going to be this transition from the first phase of the campaign to deliver the parliamentary stage and the second stage to win the grassroots membership. And yes, IDS is the kind of guy grassroots members do like. But it is a sign that they realised something had to change. Otherwise, they might actually be in a bit of trouble. Well, you're right. It's, I mean, it's been a very bumpy transition from the first phase of the Boris Johnson campaign at Westminster and the second phase. The first phase was brilliantly executed with the help of people like James Wharton, a former MP who ran his private office, Gavin Williamson, the former chief whip. I mean, they delivered exactly what they said they were going to do. They got him half the parliamentary party, got him into the second round, out of Westminster into the country. The problem started, obviously, with the row that hit the newspapers. Now, Mark Fulbrook has come in. He's a business partner of Linton Crosby, who's a close friend of Boris Johnson, ran his mayoral campaigns successfully. But they've had a terrible run recently in British elections, leave aside the Australian ones, but they advised Boris Johnson in 2016 in his abortive leadership campaign. They advised the Conservative Party in its disastrous 2017 campaign where they tried to build a personality cult around a leader who hadn't any personality. And as you mentioned, they ran Zach Goldsmith's appalling campaign to be London mayor in 2016, where they basically ran a dog whistle racist campaign in a multicultural tolerant city. It was absolutely despicable. And so they brought this guy in. There are tensions in the Johnson camp between the people who ran the first phase and Mark Fulbrook, who's now running the second phase. And I'm told it was Mark Fulbrook's first decision as the campaign chief executive to bring in Ian Duncan Smith as the chairman, which in itself was a fairly controversial thing with some of the people who've been with Boris Johnson all the way through. Miranda, let's flip back to policy for a moment. And I think, you know, Jeremy Hunt has also put out some policy proposals this week, particularly on corporation tax, spending a lot of money on defence, and also one about student tuition fees for entrepreneurs. And if we don't think Boris Johnson's policies are particularly thorough and good, you couldn't say much for Jeremy Hunt's either. Well, no, that's right. And I think sort of going back to this question of whether the whole thing is a good look for the Tory party, I'm really not sure that these policy pledges are doing them any favours. I mean, we would thinking about, you know, how thought through the Johnson camp's policy proposals are. And I would have said, you know, they're throwing them out left, right and centre, but actually not really just to the right. And similarly with Jeremy Hunt, you know, his idea for, you know, having a tuition fees amnesty for entrepreneurs. I mean, if you look at the social background of entrepreneurs in the UK, this is the most privileged echelon of young people. It's completely bonkers. It's literally giving money to people who don't need it. And it can't have been thought for for more than about a minute before they came up with it. Similarly, I was interested on the defence spending thing, because when you combine that with some of the tax cuts, you're opening up, you know, a huge question over fiscal responsibility. And you kind of wonder also how much Tory voters have changed and to whether they really want to hear that message on things like defence spending, which, you know, clearly goes down well in these hustings. But will it sort of carry forward into this mythical land beyond Brexit, which both candidates are so keen to talk about and which we will never, ever get to? Yeah, I mean, it reminded me 
I don't know if you remember the, the scene in one of the latter series of The Thick of It, where the slightly new age Tory campaign chief invites a load of people around to sit in a circle, a circle of positivity. And as they throw a ball to each other, each one has to come up with an idea and everyone goes, <laughs> yes. And that's what some of these policy ideas have reminded me of, that no one's actually sat and thought, well, if we do that, there's a problem here. The other thing I wanted to come back on was George's point about you know, Boris Johnson seeing himself essentially as a much more one-nation centrist figure. And I think it's true that he does see himself in that way. But I think the hook that he's got himself onto, and the, the Fulbrook Duncan Smith thing pointed this, because of Brexit, he is surrounding himself with people who don't actually see themselves in that way, as we understand it, and who, as times get tough, and they can't do anything but get tough, are going to drag him towards positions which are not the liberal centrist position of the Conservative Party, because things are going to get difficult, you're going to need to double down on the people who already support you and that pushes you towards more populist positions and I don't think it's that Boris Johnson necessarily wants to be that person. I think the problem for him is he's going to be dragged in that direction by political necessity. And if we go back to the earlier stage of the leadership contest, the purse, there were a couple of candidates who were certainly to the right of Boris Johnson notably Dominic Raab and there was a lot of chatter in Westminster that Dominic Raab was taken out of the contest by Boris Johnson's campaign in some backroom manoeuvres there inside that contest and you know we'll see what his cabinet looks like but it's very likely that Boris's cabinet will be much more to the right because of that than Theresa May's. Well, I mean, one of the more interesting and I think deliverable pledges that Boris Johnson made this week was to say that he will not have anyone in his cabinet who is not prepared to countenance a no-deal Brexit. So that means no Amber Rudd, no David Gork, no Greg Clark, obviously no Philip Hammond, I'm not sure, and no Rory Stewart. So already this cabinet is of a different hue to the one that a grand uniter might go for. And I think that's a very interesting point as well, Robert, because you can see already emerging a cabal on the Conservative backbenches of the people who will stop no deal. And that may well include Theresa May, Philip Hammond, all the key people who are running the government at the moment. And we also saw, George, that Margot James, who's the digital minister, she came out and said this week, I have more in common with Joe Swinson than I do with Boris Johnson, again ruled out doing no deal. So it's all looking incredibly difficult for Boris Johnson. <laughs> He's going to come into office, his majority is probably going to go down to three and there's already enough Conservatives who will say they will try and stop no deal but we still don't know actually if they would go for the confidence vote which really I guess is the killer way to try and stop no deal to bring down the government. Yes, and when it comes to the point where the rubber hits the road on a no-deal exit and Parliament votes on it, there's a lot of talk now, not just of Conservative MPs voting to stop it happening, but when they do that, because obviously they face automatic deselection by their local Conservative parties, that there would be a mass defection from the Tory party, you mentioned Margot James, to the Liberal Democrats. And one thing we haven't mentioned is there's a by-election coming up quite soon in Brecon and Radnor. I remember there's a famous Brecon and Radnor by-election in, well. in our youth, Robert, from Miranda, you said for far too young to remember In the 80s, it, Which yeah. the Liberal Democrats won. Eddie on, it was the 90s. Uh, they might might have actually. No, it's the 80s, I think. And I think. 80s, and I think it might have it been. It might have even been the old Liberal Party that won it, actually. But um, but anyway, I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if the Liberal Democrats win that by-election at the end of July, and that will give them additional impetus going into what will be a very difficult autumn. And you know, it won't be very long before Boris Johnson is in that No Deal confrontation with Parliament, because the demands he's making on the EU for the renegotiation are frankly not going to be deliverable. I mean, just look at what he wants. He wants to rip up a withdrawal agreement that they spent two years. Negotiating, he wants to take out the backstop. He's threatening not to pay the money. And in exchange for that, he wants a quick trade deal done during an implementation period, which won't happen because we won't sign the withdrawal agreement. So the confrontation's coming and the day of reckoning is, is, a, is a impending, I think. The one thing I think that Boris Johnson could do, and I'm slightly surprised he hasn't done so far, is 
make an obvious appeal for unity by telling constituency associations to lay off the Tories they're trying to deselect, you know, the David Gorks, the Dominic Greaves. I think it would be a very clever move of him and might just buy him the bit of goodwill he needs to say, I'm fed up with reading about all these deselections. I want my party to have room for all opinions and I want you all to lay off these people. I think it would do him a lot of good in the party if he did it. One topic that both candidates have dived into this week is public spending and immigration. On the Boris Johnson side, there are increasing reports that Sajid Javid is being lined up to be his chancellor, along with big pledges on public spending increases and boosting infrastructure around the country and trying to mitigate the effects of a no-deal Brexit. The frontrunner also promised to introduce an Australian-style points-based system to give the UK more control over its migration. But would it introduce numbers and what is behind this policy. So Miranda Green, if we just begin with the immigration question here, and Boris Johnson has, you know, he was the man behind the Vote Leave campaign who talked about control of borders, taking back control. And back in 2016, he talked about this Australian-style points-based system, which has developed a ring around it, but I'm not entirely sure people in Westminster fully understand what it is, what it means, and would it even actually reduce migration from its current levels? This is a completely fascinating topic because, you know, we've been told consistently that when Boris becomes prime minister, he will govern in the same way that he governed as mayor of London, which was as a liberal one nation Tory. And as mayor of London, he had a very pro-immigration stance because, of course, you know, London is a kind of magnet globally for people coming here to make a better life. On the other hand, as you say, when he was on leave platform in 2016, he started talking about this Australian points-based system of immigration, which was sold as a way to control it, but also to do so in what sounded like a fair way. So you've got objective criteria. This originally surfaced in British politics as a sort of policy objective, actually, under that infamous campaign when Michael Howard was the Conservative Party leader, also advised by Linton Crosby, who is, of course, Australian. And do you remember that Michael Howard campaign? One of the the posters said, are you thinking what we're thinking? I.e., are you also against immigrants? So the background of using this policy to signal things to voters is really quite interesting and relatively dark, I would argue, because it, it can sound fair. We have objective criteria, but it can also sound as if we're adopting the immigration policy of a country which is white. And so it's sort of seen as a quite crafty way, I would say, of disguising the fact that you may not actually have settled on an immigration policy, but you're learning from around the world. The interesting thing about how it works in Australia is, of course, that it's it's a way of tempting a large number of immigrants into the country because you need their skills. And actually, we had John McTernan, who was an advisor to Julia Gillard in Australia, but also, also has worked here for the Labour Party, explaining that if you translated to the UK, you would be talking about 500,000 people a year, probably, coming to the UK under such a system. So it's actually a liberal system which conveniently during a campaign sounds tough. So Chris Charles, this comes back to one of the fundamental contradictions if you look back at the 2016 referendum campaign, which is people like Boris Johnson are pro-immigration. That's what they say. Yeah, I remember him standing up and giving one speech and saying I'm all for immigration, I'm pro-immigrant, I just want control here. But they won the Brexit referendum off the back of views of people who are not so pro-immigration at all. And as Miranda's just very eloquently explained, this policy is designed to actually speak the 
those people think it sounds like more control, but in reality it isn't. And that does sort of suggest there will be a clash at some point in the future when if this policy came in and it ended up actually increasing net migration and maybe it would produce more high-skilled migration, which is what Boris Johnson keeps talking about. But those people who backed him and backed that referendum for the Leave vote are not going to be particularly happy. There's clearly going to be a clash because there's a lot of people in this country who don't want immigration, particularly immigration of people of a different race to uh, UK or white people they, they see as UK people now. But where I disagree with Miranda slightly is the Australian-style points-based system isn't actually a policy because you don't have a number on it, because you have to say what the cut-off level is. So it might be a very liberal policy. It could be an extremely tight policy as well, depending on what you say is the qualifying points, and also whether you say you need to have a job, as we currently do in this country, before you can have access to the country as an immigrant, or whether you say you don't, which is, is sort of essentially Australia's policy. Again, liberal, but you can have lots of uh, different ways of looking at it. And so what is this a wonderful uh, sort of slogan which is entirely meaningless until we know exactly what you get points for because our immigration system now gives you credits for certain things, for how skilled you are, and also where we think demand is in this country for jobs where which we can't supply ourselves. So the whole thing is completely ill-defined and will cause a problem because you can't satisfy everyone. You can't satisfy the liberal parts of the Conservative Party or other liberal parts of Britain and the extremely conservative parts of Britain, conservative with a small c, not wanting any change at the same time. And Boris is trying to ride two horses at once and at some point he's going to fall off. Imagine that. <laughs> the other thing about it is that it doesn't solve the low-skilled workers issue, which actually post-Brexit for some British industries, not least agriculture, caring, social care, you actually need what are classified as unskilled, low-skilled workers as well, who under these proposals as they seem to stand would not be allowed in. So that actually won't work. Just on on Chris's point, the point about that 500,000 projection is that's based on if we applied it in the way that Australia has applied it, where in fact that involves kind of one person being okayed to arrive every three minutes, which is just about as frequent as a Tory spending pledge is being thrown out in this campaign. I agree with what Chris and Miranda were just saying there about the, the vagueness of what Boris Johnson said, but I do think there will be a, a step change, whoever becomes Prime Minister, on immigration in a more liberal direction um, once Theresa May stops being Prime Minister. I don't think there's any doubt about that. The tens of thousands target is going to be dropped by whoever... Which Jeremy Hunt has also... That's the only thing he's really said about yeah. migration. He said that will go. Sajid Javid, who we've been talking about as a future Chancellor, currently the Home Secretary, has already made it clear he wants a much more liberal approach to students coming here, allowing them to stay after they complete their degree courses for at least two years. So, you know, if, if you think back to the discussions that were being had around the Cabinet table when uh, David Cameron was Prime Minister and subsequently when Theresa May became Prime Minister, it was obvious that Theresa May was the person really holding the line on the tens of thousands target. Everybody else around the cabinet table thought this is absolutely insane that we're turning away the entrepreneurs, the brightest people that are coming to this country. The other factor I would say is that because of the Brexit vote happening, I suspect largely, immigration has fallen as a salient issue in terms of the political priorities of the British people. That may be because I think because Brexit is going to happen, we will take control of our borders. It's less to worry about. But certainly people are less concerned about it now. So it's a more permissive attitude to make a, a more sort of economically sensible policy after Theresa May's gone. So 
Chris, George has very nicely segued us into the next thing, which is the Chancellor. And this is obviously a key job in any government, but in the Johnson government, it's going to be particularly crucial because A, Boris has made an awful lot of spending pledge throughout this campaign. They're Virtually every day there's a press release promising billions being spent on some area of public services. It's also going to matter with regards to Brexit as well, because one thing that Boris has talked about quite a lot on the campaign trail is that there wasn't enough money put into planning for a no-deal outcome come to try and mitigate the impact of that. And what we've reported this week in other papers as well is that Sajid Javid, the Home Secretary, is the front-runner candidate and is pretty much a dead cert at this point to be asked to move over from the Home Office to the Treasury. But he's an interesting choice because by temperament, he is a Thatcherite who would want to cut taxes and keep public spending low and he's going to go into the Treasury and then turn open the spending taps. Yes, yeah, so that I think you've put your finger on exactly the difficulty or the the tension that there will be not in the treasury but among in the cabinet about uh, spending there are is both a desire to cut taxes and keep spending low and go back to the 80s and also a desire to really make spending really happen and i think the phrase from boris's team this week has been to you know go gangbusters on the economy and uh, and really do a donald trump which means just don't care about the deficit at all spend more tax less and uh, and hope to get growth really powering ahead of what might be a difficult Brexit. I mean, it's going to be very, very difficult for them to get the economy growing extremely quickly ahead of October, if that is the uh, if that is the desire, because they will come in in July. The talk is of a budget, an emergency budget in September. Very hard to do anything much quicker than that because you've actually got to do some maths and work out what you actually want to do and get let the OBR actually work out how much it's going to cost and all these sorts of rather boring procedural things. But it takes about six weeks at least, I think, at the, about the quickest. So you're talking very early September is about the earliest you could do it. Also, that's when you know people are back from Parliament and the recess is over. So that is the time. If you were going to do an emergency budget, you would do it. You're not going to get any of these measures in by October the 31st. Literally none. The best you could do by October the 31st would be to cut VAT. And that is one of the few spending pledges we haven't heard yet. <laughs> I'm sure that'll be coming down the track soon. Miranda, I'm sure a lot of very dry, traditional Tories, people like Philip Hammond, the current Chancellor, will be absolutely despairing at this talk. And it's to be fair, it's not just from the Boris Johnson campaign. Jeremy Hunt is pledging a lot of spending as well. And of course, you know, he'll have been thinking, well, I wish I could have done this, but he has been a deficit hawk. And if you think back to how much the Conservatives talked about debt and deficit, in 2010, the coalition years in 2015. There's this sort of now acknowledgement that in fact we just don't care anymore and we've just got to spend and they want to say austerity is over even though I think we've sort of heard that about five times from different people. Well that's right and it's not just the spending pledges from the Hunt camp as well of course he wants to slash corporation tax so there's that sort of double whammy on the fiscal rectitude. It's really interesting this because it goes back in a way to what George was saying on the immigration policy. It's the degree to which you can actually have a fresh start And I would absolutely agree with George that on immigration specifically, there is an opportunity to kind of, you know, correct what was an overly harsh regime. On 
tax and spend, you know, you've still got those constraints that your predecessors had, essentially, however much you pretend you don't have them during a campaigning period like this current four weeks for the Tory leadership. And I think, you know, we, we all remember when the coalition came in and David Laws found that note from his predecessor in the Treasury, you know, a little penned note saying there's no money left, you know, good, l- good luck, never, Liam Burton. never lived that down. No, he never lived and it never down and he, ne- never and he never forgave David Laws for releasing it either. But, you know, this is the thing. You can go in with all sorts of thoughts about how you're going to reinvent the landscape, but you do actually face the same constraints. It is going to be very interesting watching Saj in that position at the Treasury if, if he gets it, because as Chris has said, you know, his whole political philosophy is that's right, but we're now facing a moment when the Conservative Party realises there's an enormous public backlash against austerity and the perceptions of what austerity's done to the social fabric and how do they square that circle. And George, what do you make of the potential choice of Sajid? We should clarify that Boris's team say nobody's been offered jobs, mm. but there's clearly been some very deep conversations between the two of them and, you know, it looks like it is happening. Why do you think they've gone for Sajid in this role? Well, on one very simple level, it would be highly attractive for Boris Johnson to put into the Treasury the first ever non-white chancellor, an Asian chancellor, especially given Boris Johnson's weaknesses in terms of some of the things he said about race in the past. But on a much more substantial note, I think it's about that they actually agree with each other quite a lot on what they want to do with the economy. Now, Miranda says that Sajid Javid is a Thatcherite, which is certainly true. He, he famously had a picture of Margaret Thatcher on his wall when he was the business secretary, and he idolised her. But what I, I'm told by his friends... And Helen Worrell and I did a magazine profile of him earlier in the year where we looked into a bit of his political philosophy is that for a long time he just believed in capitalism in a very pure way of thinking about it. But actually over time he's actually become much more interested in the idea of building up social capital as well as actual physical capital. And so Sajid Javid is someone who actually believes in investing in skills and particularly investing in infrastructure and trying to boost the productive capacity of the economy. And you've heard Sajid Javid talking about um, setting about a £100 billion infrastructure fund over five years. When he was the community secretary, he really riled Philip Hammond, the chancellor, by saying that there should be a £50 billion housing. borrowing spree for housing. So Sajid Javid is someone who is prepared to increase borrowing to invest. And I think that's something that Boris Johnson were very attracted to. So although that he is a sort of Thatcherite in, in many ways, he is prepared to spend money, which incidentally just marks him out a bit from Liz Truss, who's currently the Treasury Chief Secretary, another person people have speculated upon as being a possible Chancellor in a Johnson administration, who is also a Thatcherite, but she's someone who believes in low taxes and low public spending. Sajid Javid believes in low taxes, if you can get that word, but he's also quite prepared to spend money on investment. I mean, I think we, we have to boringly put some of the numbers in context um, a little bit. So 100 billion over five years is 20 billion a year. So that's 1% of GDP. That's quite a lot of money, but it's not huge. And this is where you sort of get into some of the sort of comparisons with Hammond, because Hammond has also been a chancellor who wanted to spend on infrastructure. And he has boosted infrastructure by at least that already. Mm. So if you had another 1% of GDP bringing up total sort of infrastructure, public investment, net investment to about 3 to 4%, that would be really quite a change in the way the British government works. It would be putting infrastructure much more at the heart of public spending than it has been. It would also raise big questions about what happens to the current spending in departments outside health. And if once his education pledges have gone, if you were in the police or 
prisons? Would you therefore not get the money or local authorities? Because that's what we thought the spending of you was about. It would be about rectifying the difficulties that are currently here with austerity. But if you, to use Boris Johnson's uh, own phrase, if you spaffed a whole load of billions up the wall on infrastructure, on everything, and a lot on tax cuts, like double-digit billions of tax cuts, then you are at some point going to run into some big constraints on your public finances. And that is where the lack of strategy here in this electoral leadership election is really plain, that they haven't ever put it all together and said, oh, actually, that's a lot of money. We've That sounds rather more like we used to be criticising Jeremy Corbyn about than uh, what we might think of as a traditional Tory government would do. Well, finally, on that note, Miranda, um, is there a sense that the Tories are just chasing Labour's tail on this thing? Because obviously Jeremy Corbyn, has, his message from day one when he became opposition leader was, we have to spend more, austerity hasn't worked, it's damaged the social fabric of our society and the lack of infrastructure is holding our economy back. And every speech that John McDonnell has given has included that kind of sentiment. And this is now, it looks as if it's about to be adopted by the Conservatives. And you do wonder if we have a general election later this year or in a couple of years' time, it's going to be who can outspend who. And the Labour will say, oh, well, we won the argument because the Tories are now, they don't care about the deficit and they're just spending more, whereas at least we're going to increase taxes to fund our spending pledges. Well, I think Chris's point is the key one, really, which is you've got to put it all together into some sort of strategy and some sort of plan that you can sell to the electorate. Chasing spending commitments that Labour have made will not work. And those were some of the errors that were made during the May era, particularly, for example, on reviewing student finance. This idea that you you have to go half the way to what Labour is promising to neutralise their threat in specific policy areas hopeless. If you're going to go to the country, particularly if it's in the autumn or next spring, against Corbyn, I mean, Corbyn's ratings are so low now that in a sense that that threat has receded, but they would have to go with an economic plan on infrastructure, on house building, all of these issues, on the long-term skills challenge, which George is quite right, it's excellent that we might have a chancellor that really cares about that. They'll have to go with something that looks like a strategy and looks far more like the individual policy tidbits that are coming out during this leadership contest. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you to George, Robert, Chris and Miranda for joining. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard and would like to see more FT journalism, then do take a look at our latest subscription offers, which you can find at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Caroline Grady. Until next time, thanks for listening. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.